You see, when you have experienced love, it creates within you a desire to share that love with others, to not hold it in. Love held in really is not love. It has to be expressed. If you would, open your Bibles this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you will stand in honor of reading God's Word as you find it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have this evening to open your word. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to hold in our hands your word. Lord, what a blessing that is. And all so often we take it for granted. I just ask God that as we meet tonight, that, you, that your word would speak to our hearts and our lives, and that you would encourage us in the job that you have given us to do, that you would strengthen us, that you would help motivate us to be involved in the cause of worldwide evangelism, starting right here in Surrey, British Columbia. And for that, Lord, we will give you all of the honor, all of the praise, and all of the glory. In your name we pray, amen. You all may be seated. God has given my, my wife and I the privilege of having seven children. My children range in age from one to 19. And over the years, as with all parents, we have made our mistakes. There have been times that I've gotten upset with my kids when I should have remained calm. There have been times that I have said something or did something that really, in hindsight, I should have handled differently or I should have done differently. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. There, we, none of us are perfect parents. But over the years, God has taught me a few things. One of the things that I have learned is that there is a particular question that has a tendency to drive most parents absolutely crazy. Does anybody tonight have any idea what that question is? I, I heard somebody. Say it again. Say it a little bit louder. Why? 
Why? The why questions never stop. My eight-year-old, Evan, I mean, he comes up with some of the craziest questions there is. Why is this? Why is that? Why do we do this? Why? They never end. Growing up, I was taught as a kid that you don't ask why. That if you ask why, it's a sign of rebellion. If you would go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I don't understand. Why is this? Well, I'm the pastor. You follow me. You obey me. And so I had to learn that as my kids were asking the why question, most of the time they were not doing it out of a rebellious heart. They were doing it with a sincere desire to know and understand. Now, there are times when they ask a why question that I just turn and look at them and say, because I told you to do it, now go get it done. And sometimes that is the best, the most appropriate answer. There are other times that I take it as a teaching opportunity, and I will explain to them the reasons why I want them to do it. Living in South Korea, we lived in a large apartment complex, and we never had to mow the the lawn. In fact, we didn't even have a lawn. Um, It was this rubbery mat-type stuff on the sidewalks and then asphalt for the for the driveways, we didn't have a yard. And so this past year, we've had the opportunity to have a small house, to stay in a small house in Springfield, Missouri. And with that house came the responsibility of maintaining the yard. And so I've been working with my two older boys, Elijah and Ethan, on how to mow and how to take care of the yard and how to take care of a house. And I've really enjoyed the opportunity to teach them. There was one particular time this past summer where I went to Elijah and I said, Elijah, I want you to mow the yard today for me. I'm going to be very busy. I'm going to be out running. We're leaving um, on Saturday. I, I need you to mow the yard to me today, for, for me today. He says, Dad, I, I'm, I would really like to do this today. Can I mow the yard tomorrow? Why do I have to do it today? And so I kind of walked him through. I says, okay, last night I watched the weather forecast, and the weatherman said, and I don't remember what the exact percentage was, but it was like 70 or 80% chance of rain. Now, you know, son, that we're leaving on Saturday morning early, so if you don't do it today, when is it going to get done? Oh, okay, Dad, I see it. And he went and he got the lawnmower out, and he started mowing the yard. It was an opportunity to provide a little bit of instruction and to help him think through what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Now you say, Brother Elliot, I thought this was a missions conference. Well, hold on, we're getting there. You see, when you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the Bible teaches that you became a child of God. If you are a believer tonight, you are God's child. Now, I want to ask a simple question. Do we not treat God the same way that our kids treat us with those why questions? Do we not go to God and say, God, why is this happening? I don't understand. God, why me? Why now? Why this? Why that? If we were honest, do we not approach God in that same manner? 
I know I do at times. I remember in 2009 when Esther was sick, going to God and arguing with God, God, why my family? Why my daughter? Why, why, why? And you know, sometimes God never answers those why questions. Instead, he simply says, look to me. Remember who I am. And as we remember who God is, our problems that once seemed so large have a tendency to shrink down and become much smaller. The peace that passes all understanding, the peace that we cannot explain, it has to be experienced, becomes ours when we remember who God is. But there are times in the Word of God that God knows that we want to ask the why question, or we will ask the why question, and he goes into further teaching and further explanation of why something is the case. And that is what we find in our text tonight. You see, you and I know that God has given us a command to go into all the world. That is why we're here tonight. I mean, we could preach message after message after message just out of Matthew 28 out of Mark 16, or, or out of Luke or John. And really, the command to go into all the world begins in the book of Genesis and goes clear through the Bible, clear into the book of Revelation. You and I know that. Some of you, many of you probably, have already memorized the command of God to go into all the world, to preach the gospel to every creature. But if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that at times, just knowing the command of God is not quite enough for us to be active in obeying the command of God. You say, Brother Elliot, what do you mean? Well, it's very simple. You see, you and I have the command to go into all the world. And if we're going to obey that command, that means we must be doing three things. We must be praying. The Bible commands us to pray that the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth the laborers into his harvest. If we are going to be obedient to the command of God, it must be reflected in our prayer life. If we're going to be obedient to the command of God to go into all the world, it must be reflected in our finances. We must be tithing, and in addition, we must be giving our missions offering. We must be participating in the missions outreach of the church. You say, Brother Elliot, times are t I, I get it. Unlike the tithe, the, mission, the amount of missions offering is never specified in the Word of God. It's a matter of the heart. You remember the widow lady and how she put the little amount of money in the offering box that day? More than your money, God wants your heart. And that's where giving really begins. And we could preach message after message after that. But let me just say that if you are not participating in faith promise missions giving, you are not obeying the command of God to go. The, the third aspect is going. You see, God may not call you to Sierra Leone, or God may not call you to Korea, or um, Europe, or Australia, but he has placed you right here. And he has given you the command of God to go to the people around you. 
And if you are not doing all three of those things, then you are not obeying the command of God to go. It's that simple. You say, again, Brother Elliot, where are you going? Well, I'm going with the fact that you and I know the command of God. We have the intellectual head knowledge that God has told us. But if we really begin to evaluate how we live our lives every day of the week, the intellectual head knowledge of the command often is not enough. We interact with somebody at the grocery store. We interact with somebody on the sidewalk. We interact with a neighbor. We interact with a friend. We interact with a family member. We interact with a coworker. Our mouth stays shut about the things of Christ. Oh, Brother Elliot, I've, I've, I've explained it to him. Yeah, I get it. Have they accepted? Then the job isn't done. You see, every day we have interaction with people around us that we don't open our mouth about the things of Christ. We don't offer them a tract. We don't offer them an invitation to church. We don't tell them about what God has done for us. We acknowledge the command of God. But it's never made it to our heart. And I believe that that's one of the reasons why God gave us 2 Corinthians chapter 5. is because He knew in His infinite wisdom that just knowing the command of God was not going to be enough to motivate us to obey that command. And so in this passage of Scripture, we see four more reasons why you and I should be involved in the cause of missions. Why should we be here for missions conference? Why should we give our money? Why should we go? Why should we pray? Why, why should we labor so hard to reach the world with the gospel? We find here four reasons. I want to briefly give them to you this evening. The first reason that we find here is found in verse 9. It says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now this verse has been used throughout the ages to teach much false doctrine. False doctrine would be teaching, biblical teaching that is not correct, and therefore it is not biblical. There are two areas of false doctrine that I have heard taught out of this verse. My last year of high school, I went to an independent Baptist church in Indiana. And the pastor at that church actively taught, and he used this verse as one of his proof texts, that the more doors you knocked, the more people you invited to church, the more time you spent on soul winning, the more God would love you. You had to work to earn God's love. And he would look right here and he says, you see, we labor, we work, we, we strive so that we would be accepted, so that God would love us. Well, number one, first, I want you to notice that nowhere in this, past, in this verse does it say anything about God's love. It doesn't say that we work to earn God's love. In fact, I would go as far to say that when God died on the cross, the Bible teaches that we were enemies, we were at enmity with him. We were separated from him. We did not love God before our salvation. We love him because he first loved us. It has nothing to do with our work, and God will not love you any more 
than he loved you when he died for you on the cross. That's not what this verse is teaching. The other thing that I have heard taught really more often than that out of this verse is that this verse teaches that you can lose your salvation. I was at Bible college, and there was another Bible college in the same town, really just down and around the corner from the college I was going to. I was working at McDonald's, paying my way through Bible college. My parents were not wealthy. I, I worked 40 to 50 hours a week in, um, during Bible college to pay my way through college. And I was working with a lady that was in the pastoral program. That should tell you something about the Bible college pastor. I, I was working with a lady that was in the pastoral program of that Bible college. And one night as we were closing McDonald's, she came to me and said, Brother, or Daniel, I don't get you independent Baptists. You say you believe that once you get saved, you're always saved. Well, see this verse right here, and she pointed to this verse. She pulled out her Bible and said, pointed to this verse and said, it says that we labor in order to be accepted of him. Therefore, if we are no longer laboring, then God's not going to accept us. We're no longer saved. Well, one of the first rules of Bible interpretation is that you always look at the context. The context would be defined as what is immediately above it, what is immediately below it. The context could be the chapter. The context could be the book. The context is the Bible as a whole. The Bible will never contradict itself. And if there is a seemingly contradiction, it's not found in the Word of God. It's found in our understanding of the Bible. That answer is very easily found in looking at the context. Because in verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the only people that will, that will appear at the judgment seat of Christ are believers. So, in other words, the Apostle Paul is saying here that there will be people that appear at the judgment seat of Christ. People that are saved. People that are going to heaven. I should say people that are in heaven that will not be accepted of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 describes what will take place on that day as our life's work is judged by fire. It says that some of our life's work will be burnt up, the hay, the stubble. Some of it will be turned to precious stones, the gold and the silver and the precious stones. If I could put it a little bit differently, what the Apostle Paul is simply saying here is that he wants to hear his heavenly Father say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I have been blessed to have Christian parents. My mom and dad, they'd be the first to admit that they were not perfect parents, that they had to learn just as we've had to learn how to be parents, that they made their mistakes. But one of the things that they did right is that they saw that we were in church. I cannot remember a time in our family that we were not in church. The rule in our house was very simple. If you are not in the hospital, you're well enough to be in church. Now, I don't know how that would go in today's age of COVID and all of the things going on with that, but I'm very thankful for the priority that they put on being in God's house. Parents, if I could encourage you in one thing, when you decide that something else is more important than being in God's house, when these doors are open, you're teaching your children that God does not matter to you. 
You're teaching your children that something else is more important than God. More important than obeying His Word. More important, and it doesn't matter what you say out of your mouth. They see your actions. I'm very thankful that my parents put the priority on being in church. And I'm, I'm thankful that even though my parents would be the first to admit that they would love to see their grandkids more, they'd love for us to be around more, they would love to have more time with us, that they are pleased and honored that we are serving God. And every once in a while, my dad will come up to me, Pastor, and he will put his arm around me, and he will say, Son, I'm proud of you. Continue on. Stay faithful. That does something to my heart. To hear my, heaven, or my earthly father say, Son, you're doing right. You're doing well. Can you imagine with me for just a minute what it would be like to hear our Heavenly Father say, Son, daughter, I'm proud of you. You did good. That is what the Apostle Paul is teaching right here. He is saying that we are involved in reaching the world through missions, that we are involved in reaching Canada, that we're involved in reaching our Jerusalem because we want to hear our Heavenly Father say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The second reason that we find here to be involved in the cause of missions is found in verse 11. It says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now today, in today's world, people, and I'd have to say myself included, does not really like preaching about the terror of the Lord. It's not a subject that is comfortable for us to discuss. It's not a subject that we like to hear about, but it's a subject that is dealt with time and time and time again in the Word of God. Specifically, the terror of the Lord that is being referred to here, I believe, is a period of time that we know as the seven-year tribulation period. It is a period of time that occurs immediately following the rapture. It is a period of time of if I could use the terminology, literally hell on earth. If you read the book of Revelation, it describes this seven-year period of time from about Revelation chapter 4 through roughly Revelation chapter 20. Now, I would challenge you to read the book of Revelation and do the math. If you were to do the math reading the book of Revelation, you would learn that somewhere between 50 to 95% of the world's population will die in seven years. Let me say that again. Somewhere between 50 to 95% of the world's population will die in seven years. Now, I'm going to stay away. I'm going to try and stay away from all of the political aspects of surrounding COVID, but I want to use COVID as an illustration tonight. You see, when COVID began, the news media in America, and I don't know what they said here, but the news media in America said that COVID had a death rate of approximately 5%. Now, I think time has shown us that the death rate for COVID is much lower than 5%. But that's not here nor there. That's what they were saying at the time. They would also tell us that not everybody was going to get COVID. 
that some people were going, either going to be immune of it for some reason or, or they just weren't going to be exposed to it. Not everybody would, would get COVID. But those that got it, approximately 5% would pass away, would enter into eternity. And for that disease, right, wrong, or otherwise, again, I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but right, wrong, or otherwise, we shut our churches down, we shut our factories down, we shut our transportation down. We shut our, um, the logistics train down. And it wasn't just the United States. It wasn't just Canada. It literally affected just about, if not every country of the world. We saw the same basic reaction all over the world. For this disease, and, and I don't want to minimize it in any manner. I have friends that have passed away from COVID. With, from, from this disease that not everyone is going to catch, and even of those that catch it, not everybody is going to die, we were willing to shut our societies down. I saw things that I thought I'd never see in my lifetime with the church doors shuttered. Signs do not enter by order of the health department. You know what I'm talking about. This is my point. If the world would do that for this disease called COVID, can you imagine with me for a moment the level of fear that the world will have during that seven-year period of time? When people around them are dropping like flies, when the bodies are piling up in the street because there's no one left to bury them, when the trash has not been picked up for months because the trash trucks are no longer running because civil society has broken down. Can you imagine with me the level of fear that your friends and that your neighbors and that your co-workers will go through? We could sit back and say, Brother Elliot, I'm not going to experience it, and that's correct. You and I as believers will never experience the terror of the Lord. But that does not change the fact that literally billions of people will. And you and I have the answer right here. A few miles down the road, there's a bridge over the Fraser River. If that bridge was to collapse, and the, and I don't know what you call them here, the highway, we would call them the highway patrol or the highway department. If they did nothing to block the road, and every day there was literally hundreds of people that went to their death driving over that bridge into the river, would we not be upset? Would we not do something to try and warn people that the bridge was out? Would we not say that they had not done their job and really in many ways demand their, their job, that they, they, these people died because of them? Do we not do the same thing? Yeah, we could avoid the bridge if it was out. But do we not have a responsibility to warn them that the bridge is out? In the Old Testament, the Bible puts it as, I sought for a watchman, a, a watchwoman, a person that would, that would warn the bridge is out. Danger is coming. 
the Apostle Paul says that we labor, that we're involved in missions, that we're involved in reaching our friends, our community, that we're involved in giving, that we're involved in praying because we want to hear our Heavenly Father say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because you and I know, we've read the book, and we know the book is true, and we know what it says will happen. And we want to warn people what's coming. The third reason that we find here is found in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. That word constraineth is a very interesting word. It has the concept behind it of being bound. The love of God binds us and holds us on the straight path and the narrow path. The love of God holds us faithful. The love of God holds our salvation in His hands. The love of God keeps us. But it also has the concept of being pushed and shoved. The love of God also pushes and shoves us out. I want to illustrate from my own life. Right at 24 years ago, my wife and I, or I should say my wife-to-be, and I was sitting at a friend's house. Now, this friend was up in age. She had been married. She was on her third marriage. Her other two husbands had passed away, and she was on her third marriage. She'd been remarried. Um, now, this was, like I said, this was her third marriage. Her husband had um, also been married. His wife had passed away, and they had been remarried. And we'd gone over to their house just to spend some time together, um, because we were trying to maintain accountability in our relationship. We were watching a movie. At the end of the movie, it was implied that there was a wedding. And George, the, the gentleman of the house, looked at my, my wife-to-be and I and said, when's yours coming? And I was like, um, um, I'm not quite sure. And my wife-to-be pulls out her little calendar, and she turns to a date in August and says, how about this date right here? To this day, there is a debate, a friendly debate, between my wife and I over who asked who to marry each other. I, I would say when she said that date that she asked me, but she'd say, no, I didn't ask you the question. And she's right, she didn't. But I remember how I felt when that really began to sink in. And I knew that I was going to be getting married and that she had agreed to marry me. I wanted to shout it out from the rooftops. I wanted to let everybody know. I, I picked up the phone and I began calling people. Hey, I'm engaged. I'm engaged. I'm going to get married. We've set the date. We're going to get married on August 15th. We set the date. I'm, I'm engaged. I wanted everybody to know. That's really what he's talking about here. You see, when you have experienced love, it creates within you a desire to share that love with others, to not hold it in. Love held in really is not love. It has to be expressed. He's saying when you and I have experienced the love of God, it should create within us a desire to share that love with those around us. We, we find it illustrated in a similar way in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. You see, Isaiah saw who God was and the awesome holiness and the wonder and the grandeur of God. Do you remember what his response was? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips in the midst of an unclean people. 
when he saw who God was, he saw his condition and recognized his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people, of his nation. Then when he had the coals touched on his lips, do you remember what his response was, having experienced the love of God? Here am I, send me. We see the same thing in the Apostle Paul's life if you read his testimony. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? How can I serve you? You see, when you and I have experienced the love of God, it should create within us a desire to share that love with others. For the love of Christ constraineth us. It pushes us. It binds us. It shoves us out so that others can experience the peace that passes understanding. There's one more reason here that Paul gives us that we should be involved in missions. And for lack of better terminology, I want to just simply say, he says that it is our duty. Look with me again in verse 15. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The Apostle Paul is simply reminding us that when we accepted Christ, that there was a transaction that took place. The Bible describes it using the terms of redemption. And to redeem means to buy back. So when you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, God redeemed you. The Apostle Paul puts it differently in another passage when he says that we are not our own, for we have been bought with a price. In Romans chapter 12, he put it this way, that, um, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul is simply saying, if it's not enough for you to hear your daddy say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If that does not motivate you, if the fact of the terror of the Lord does not motivate you, if the fact of experiencing God's love does not motivate you, then it is simply your duty to be involved in sharing the gospel with those around you and with those around the world. C.T. Studd was a famous missionary back contemporary with Hudson Taylor, D.L. Moody, in that time frame. C.T. Studd came from a very wealthy family. He was a um, famous cricketer. I don't know a lot about the sport of cricket. My wife grew up in England, and she's tried to explain it to me a time or two. I still don't get it. I'm not exceptionally sports-oriented. It's just not one of the gifts that God has given me. But this guy, he was a very well-known famous, very good cricketer. He renounced his family fortune. He left the sports field, and he went to serve overseas as a missionary, I believe first in China, and then he went to Africa and spent most of his life serving in the country of Africa. On one of his trips back to England, he was asked, how could you give it all up? You gave up well, today would be millions in fortune. You gave up all of the fame of the sports arena. How could you give it all up? This was his reply. I had known about Jesus dying for me, but I had never understood that if he died for me, then I didn't belong to myself. Redemption means buying back. 
so that if I belonged to him, either I had to be a thief and keep what wasn't mine, or else I had to give up everything to God. When I came to see that Jesus had died for me, it didn't seem too hard to give it all up for him. The Apostle Paul is simply encouraging us not to be a thief. To put it a little bit differently, he's saying that we should be involved in missions because we want to hear our Heavenly Father say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He's saying that we should be involved in missions, that we should be involved in giving, that we should be involved in praying, we should be involved in going, because you and I know what's coming. And although we don't know when the rapture is going to occur, and we don't know when the tribulation period is going to begin, we know that it is going to begin at some point. We should be involved in warning people that it's coming. He's saying that the love of Christ should motivate us to, in, to share our faith with others. And then he says, if all of that is not enough, simply do not be a thief and steal from God. Because you see, when we live our lives for ourselves, that's effectively what we're doing. Because the Bible says that we are not our own. We're, we, we're here. We exist to serve him. And so wherever God has placed you, whatever occupation God has allowed you to serve in, serve Him. Be involved in warning people, of telling people, of encouraging people about Christ. Be involved in missions. Be involved in praying. Be involved in giving. Be involved in going. Because if we're not, we're simply thieves. Stealing from God what is not rightfully ours. You know, really, it should be enough for us to simply say, God, you said it, I'm going to do it. But many times it's not, is it? Many times we go through our daily life and when opportunities come for one reason or another, we don't recognize it. We haven't asked God to give us the wisdom to recognize those God-given opportunities to share the gospel. Sometimes we couch it in religious terms and we simply say, I'm waiting for an open door. I'm waiting for God to open the door for me to share the gospel with this friend or family member. I don't find anywhere in the Word of God where it says to wait for an open door. I do find where it says time is short. I do find where it says go. I do find where it encourages us to be active daily in the cause of Christ. Friend, it should be enough just to simply obey the command of God to go. But so many times it's not. God knew that, and so he explains to us in further detail why we should be active in going. Because we want to hear our Heavenly Father say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because you and I know what's coming. We will not experience it, but we know what's coming with the terror of the Lord. Because we've experienced the love of God and it should create within us a desire to share that love with others. And then finally, simply because we do not want to be thieves and steal what is not rightfully ours. See, when you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, He bought you with the most precious thing that He could ever give, His own blood. Let's be involved in reaching the world for Christ. Let's continue the and expand upon the history that this church has in sharing the gospel with your town, with your nation, and with the world. 
Let's go forward for the cause of Christ. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.